This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Outside Looking In. This is the podcast wherein I talk to somebody from every single market or somebody who cares about that team, covers that team, whatever it is, they know about their team and every team is represented. In doing so, 29 episodes, you get to learn about every single team in the NBA. And additionally, we get to bounce off what the idea of the Raptors is in the popular culture of basketball. Who are the players who are beloved? How you know, what do they think Scotty's going to become? How interesting is the Project 6-9, Vision 6-9, all that kind of stuff. That's basically the goal of this podcast. YouTube, podcast, whichever you're listening to, thanks for tuning in. But today, we have a Kings podcast, a team I've been invested in for a long time, one of my favorite watches. And Brendan Nunez is here to discuss the Kings with us. And of course, he is from the Kings Pulse podcast and Kings Herald, where he does some written work. Brendan, how the hell are you doing, man? I'm doing good, Samson. Appreciate you uh, having me on. I'm shocked to hear that you've been into the Kings. I don't know if there's all too many people outside of Sacramento or there's a lot of foreign fans, actually, from uh, them having a handful of decent international players throughout the years. But uh, definitely different to hear somebody say that they're interested in the Kings from the outside. So as a lefty, I was always very interested in the progression of De'Aaron Fox. And now, at this point in time, I'm not, I'm no longer a fan of De'Aaron Fox. He said that there was going to be commentary or they were going to clear up what they were doing with his NFT project at the end of the season. I have not seen clarification. And as it currently stands, he stole a bunch of money from his fans. So I'm curious to see what happens with that before I, if he pays everybody back, then good guy De'Aaron, the fandom is back on. Um, he's obviously going to be good still this year, but uh, I he was the driving force behind my Kings fandom. And then there was a bunch of interesting thing hap- things happening. Rashawn Holmes was probably one of the most underrated bigs in the NBA for some time. May still be the case this upcoming year. And uh, Harrison Barnes was also a guy who I liked. Yeah, like a non-miraculous game, obviously, but for some reason, some guys just stick with you. Before we get into Sacramento, though, I did want to ask you the broad strokes, the flashbulb thoughts on the Toronto Raptors. I think that I am jealous of the amount of wings on the Toronto roster. I think that's something that Sacramento has definitely lacked and really looked for for a very long time now. And I was shocked by the Scotty pick at the time, but obviously in hindsight, that's that's looking pretty good for them. Big OG Ananobi fan as well. Again, I mean, just the wing, the wings with creation ability who also have versatile defense is just something that Sacramento hasn't seen and I've been fiending for. So it's definitely 
a nice change of pace for myself to go watch a team that has wing talent and, and exceeds on the defensive end. So, and, and good coaching Sacramento's had a lot of turnover there as well. So I definitely think that it wouldn't hurt to add another player to Toronto's roster, another top end player, if you're actually talking about coming out of the East. But I think considering uh, the quick, turnaround from moving on from Kyle Lowry and, and Kawhi Leonard walking out the door that Toronto's in a pretty admirable spot from my point of view. So it's been a few episodes since I've had any meaningful OG and Anobi dialogue. So I'm going to ask you to swing back in there with me. OG and Anobi, for some people like me, for some people like Nikias, I, I talked with him about it. He's pretty big on OG still. It's when you're caught in the narrative bubble, which OG was prior to last season. He had most improved player buzz. He had an opportunity to take more of the on-ball reps with with Pascal out. And most people did not see Scotty being an on-ball guy early on in his career. So we thought we might even get a little bit of Helio OG. There's still all the things that a person could have been optimistic about are still present in his game. He just has to improve. I'm curious what your thoughts are on him exceeding and stepping out of this incredible in his role archetype and into maybe even like a pseudo star with that creation that you talked about as far as the Raptors having those wings. I wonder how you see OG figuring into that in the future. Yeah, you know, I haven't seen as many Raptors games as as I'd like and certainly not as much as you or, or Nikias as somebody that covers a team all the way over in the Pacific Division. But I think that really what it comes down to for me with OG is like for it to be a four-year, $72 million contract, anything that you get on top of what he already is, if there is these developments of self-creation, is just even more of a positive uh, contract in like asset management and, and value on that deal. Because I think he's already a positive and the fact that there's even more just the flashes that I honestly am not all too sure how much I buy it I wanted more last year um, but I think with a little bit more of a development of the handle and he's a good finisher at the rim but I think uh, it more advanced handle would just accentuate his ability to highlight his good finishing ability and you know, some self-creation from beyond the arc is what I, I think is one of the most valuable things when you're talking to stars in the league. And that's not something that you saw from OG, a phenomenal catch and shoot guy. But a lot of my uh, appreciation for OG has to do with, I think he's already a positive value on this contract. So if there's even more steps in his game that again, I wanted to see more last year, but in the I guess limited sample size isn't the right word, but only 48 games you would have hoped to see a little bit more. Um, and like you said, Scotty already being a guy that uh, warranted the amount of touches and self-creation that he did uh, maybe made it for a little bit of weird circumstances. But I, I think that the deal is just phenomenal. And for him to be barely 25 and have even more upside, if that handle can, can come along, I, I think that there's definitely star potential for OG, but it's in a great scenario where you don't need that from Toronto's point of view. This is why this podcast series is really cool because it gives you a different frame of reference that I haven't heard somebody mention how good OG and Anobi's contract is in some time because it's mostly about the expectations now. But the fact is that four years, 72 million at that point in time, OG, you know, there's people who do like, you know, 
money versus impact. And they, they bring those two things together with analytics and OG by those numbers was always considered closer to probably 20 per year. And that was with no progressions in his game. And as you say, already being a supremely positive player, who knows where it gets to if he improves. And it's, yeah, the, the expectations are an interesting thing, the way it happens with NBA players and how it comes in and out of vogue. It's, uh, it's encouraging to have somebody shed light on that as well. There's expectations, of course, for Sabonis and Fox, though. This is a pretty dynamic pairing as far as, maybe not as far as the top tier of the NBA goes, but as far as play styles, flash, and perceived ceiling, I think that they're a very interesting twosome. I'm curious what your broad strokes, once again, are on Sabonis and Fox and where you think a team led by those two can end up. Yeah, well, you got another lefty sitting right there for you with Sabonis. <laughs> and, and and by the way, Davion and Keegan are both lefties when it comes to writing, but they shoot with their right hands. So technically four lefties on this Sacramento roster. for And Ken Basemore, five lefties for what it's worth. Um, hmm. So Sacramento stocking up on lefties over here. I think that the two-man pairing of Fox and Sabonis has tremendous potential offensively. Uh, specifically, obviously, utilizing Sabonis's playmaking ability and Fox playing off of that with his obviously like being voted as one of the, if not the fastest player in the league in that uh, survey that comes out every year by different players and front office members and, and coaches and things like that. Um, but I think it's not just straight line speed. It's the twitchiness. And I think the fakes that come with that moving off ball. Sabonis only played 15 games with Sacramento last year, but you could already see moments where these guys don't even have all that much of chemistry with one another. But right away, it was just like, oh my God, this is going to unlock a completely different level of De'Aaron Fox. And I think that that will be obviously beneficial for Sabonis. Like right now you see uh, he just got eliminated from Eurobasket and they're trying to run the ball through him. But when you don't have the smartest cutters, it maybe isn't uh, the not the best context context for Domas, a guy that one of his best skills I, I think is playmaking. So I, it benefits both of them, but I, I think it specifically unlocks a different level of De'Aaron's game. And I think also having confidence in his role man, it will be different. You know, instead of having to the drop off pass to Rashawn Holmes, if you get it to him in the right spot, he's getting the push shot with. Domas, like you could just get him the ball and he's going to figure out how to make the a good play from whatever position that you put him in, really. And I think that having that level of confidence in your role, man, will be very different for De'Aaron. So I enjoy and I'm optimistic that they got those 15 games together last year and they get to spend this offseason kind of figuring out the most optimal way to work together offensively. But obviously the big question mark is, is the shooting. Like, one of them needs to be an average shooter. And it kind of feels like the you need to bet on De'Aaron becoming that guy. And De'Aaron's done it off the catch. Last year, I want to say he was around 33%. The year before, he was 40% actually um, on catch and shoot threes. So I think he's okay in that aspect. But I think when it comes to unlocking the two-man game with Domas as ideally as possible. He's just got to be able to punish guys when they go under screens. And I think you're going to see a lot of rescreening um, where De'Aaron's mid-range was really 
really good last year. And I, I think you're going to see a lot of rescreens or just setting those screens a little bit lower and kind of some empty side picket roll. And I think that that's a way to get around that. But obviously, if De'Aaron can take that next step as a three-point shooter, that there'd be a whole different game there. And, and Domas just being able to punish guys of taking jumpers from the elbow, that was one of the things that was most surprising from uh, to me last year is just doesn't take jumpers at all, really, it feels like. And, you know, I, I understand that's not his most optimal shot and not something that you want to go to all the time or anything, but I think that obviously hitting that would just unlock the rest of his game. So I do have questions um, when it comes to who is what the spacing is kind of going to look like with that lineup and if teams are going to be able to figure out how to, specifically if they get to the postseason, which I guess would be a good problem for Sacramento at that point if they can break that 16-year drought at this point, which is just getting more and more ridiculous with each year that passes. But I think offensively, there's definitely a way that this pairing is one of the best two-man games in the league, even if the shooting doesn't develop in an amazing way. Uh, Defense is where I am a little bit worried, admittedly. And I think that has less to do with De'Aaron and and more so with Domas, just because they're the importance of those uh, variance in positions when it comes to the defensive end of the floor. Bigs just being so vital there. And um, Alvin Gentry, I don't think is looked at as a great coach in the NBA, but was running a lot of drop for Domas. And I just don't think that's the most ideal thing for him. If you're um, if you're hedging with him, I, I think it's probably a little bit better way to go about that. But Mike Brown is, is definitely praised on that end. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how to make it work on defense because De'Aaron was also very unengaged, but showed flashes at times. Um, it's definitely going to be a pairing where the offense has to carry them and you just have to get by on the defensive end. I'm very interested to see how they choose to run Domas on defense, especially it when like Caitlin Cooper did a really good job when Domas was in Indiana of covering not only how he operated in Rick Carlisle's defense, but also in Nate Bjorkren's and Nate Bjorkren had Domas running everywhere. It was incredibly, you know, motion heavy and Carlisle slowed it down. And then obviously there was drop last year for him in Sacramento. And so I wonder where that settles and if he can, like some bigs do, once they finally get to settle into a spot, they start to look much better because it becomes more about how you, if you're at that size, it becomes more about how you read the floor. And Domas, is his court mapping is absolutely an essential aspect of his game on offense. And I wonder if you invert that, can he start making better reads defensively? It's pretty late in his career, but who knows? We talked a little bit about how Sabonis can weaponize players. I'm curious how you think Fox can allow players like Davion Mitchell, players like Sabonis on the other side, to be them their best selves, I suppose. I think with Domas, just having somebody else to take the pressure off of him, I, I think it'll be function similarly to kind of what we saw with Oladipo. I think that they're pretty comparable players given different sizes. Um, but I, I think that just... Half defense is having to worry so much about De'Aaron and, and being able to set him up in in that two man game specifically, uh, getting defenders on their heels and getting him in in solid positioning there where he can make the right play to to uh, the next players and. So I think that they're going to just be figuring out their their two-man game. I think De'Aaron is one of the better passers that Domas has ever played with as well by a decent margin, unless there's somebody that's uh, slipping through my mind here. Um, so I, I think that that's a way that 
he could really benefit Domas. Um, and then when it comes to the other guys on the team, it, it's just about honestly hitting open shots, I think is one of the biggest things for this core. The Kings were so bad at shooting last year and obviously Fox and Domas having their own shooting woes and being guys specifically in De'Aaron that really thrive at getting to the basket and Domas is the same, but the spacing on the team was atrocious last year. And it was like, you're looking at Mo Harkless or Chemezi Metu or Marvin Bagley at that four spot guys that outside of Mo Harkless aren't really bringing you anything on the defensive end. And at the same time, aren't hitting their open shots, maybe here and there, but defenses give them no sort of respect at all. So I, I think that there's going to, Domas is really going to highlight the improvement in basketball IQ on this roster because not only hitting open shots, but the threat of being a good shooter. And obviously when your defender turns his head cutting and, and getting used to all the right movements there, I, I think is going to be very, very, beneficial to guys like Davion Mitchell, who I am admittedly a lot more skeptical of than I think most people in Sacramento media, um, just because I haven't seen the three-point shot yet. Right now, that senior year at Baylor is still the outlier. The The free throw shooting has not been good. There's plenty of reason to believe. Anytime you try to ask about Davion Mitchell last year, you got met with, I'm not worried at all. He works his butt off. He's going to make it work. That's great. I believe it. I love the work ethic. The stories are legitimately like, absurd with the amount that this guy works um so i'm absolutely rooting for him but until i see the three-point shooting i am a little bit skeptical there but i think guys like keegan murray who you saw what he did at iowa last year just kind of within the flow of the offense is going to be such a great fit alongside domas specifically he's a great cutter um monty mcnair was sure to point out his dunk percentage during his introductory presser, not for any sort of flashiness or anything, but obviously the most efficient shot in basketball. And uh, Domas is going to set him up for those looks, a ridiculous three-point shooter. And you would hope, I, I don't think that we get it right away, but that he could develop into a weak side rim protector because that's rim protection is the biggest hole on this Sacramento roster, assuming that Domas is going to be playing at the five as I uh, expect. So I, I think that you're definitely going to see some of these other guys, uh, basketball IQs shine because last year, specifically thinking of Marvin Bagley and Buddy Heald, that was uh, probably not a strong suit for Sacramento. So you talked about being jealous of the Raptors wings at the top of the podcast. And I think we have a unique op opportunity here with Keegan Murray being one of the, the darlings of the draft class as far as the film he's been able to put on tape since. And Casey Opala and Kevin Herter. And we can kind of dive into what's happening in Sacramento. And you can correct me on anything that I might get wrong. And then we'll invert that and we'll see what you think about the Raptors' many wings. And if there's something that I think... Uh, I disagree with this, then we'll do that. So I'll start with Keegan. But the thing that's really, really interesting is that the processing, you know, it's it's every time a wing who's fluid comes into the NBA, a lot of the time they're more so about self-creation just from a standstill. And it's all about the tools. And Keegan is just like production. And like really swift decision making. And, you know, a guy like you talked about fitting in with the Kings is this a really fluid decision maker on the court. Like it's side top side action comes to him. You can expect he gets a long closeout or something. He's either going to hit the shot if available to him or he'll put the ball on the floor, get all the way to the rim or even like a lay down on the way there. It's just, I think, a very impressive player who gives you that that base 
that you get to build from and that he gets to add these little discrete skills that will maybe turn him into a star. But I've mostly just been impressed by film because it's it's a guy who's it's rare, I think, to get a wing. Like Kevin Knox was a guy that I think about who has a similar build and frame. And his was like that self-creation stuff. And it was this. And then everything, once he gets to the NBA, it kind of stalls out because the advantages aren't gained as easily and all that kind of stuff. But Keegan, I think that it's showing that it'll carry over very well. Herter, I think, is wonderfully adept at filling in bit roles offensively, catch and shoot, you know, tertiary playmaker, ball handler. You know, you get second side offense, the ball comes to him, you feel pretty good. He cuts to drag guys away. He's conscientious as an offensive mover. I think he's great. And Casey Opala, I'm admittedly behind the eight ball here. Mostly, I've just heard what he's been talked about because I haven't seen that much of him. It's kind of a similar thing to you with saying like, hey, you know, I'm all over. I'm way over here in the Pacific and I don't see that many Raptors games. Casey Opala, I really just want to lean on your expertise for him. So of those three, the wingy guys, I'm curious, what am I missing? What have I hit on? And Casey Opala. I think for Keegan, you're absolutely spot on. And, you know, I was admittedly very critical of the, I guess, asset management of taking him at four because the Kings aren't a team that has star caliber talent. Like, I, I just don't think that they're in a spot where they should be valuing, I mean, as basic and cliche as it is, um, fit over talent. And I think that Ivy was admittedly the uh, significantly better talent. I don't think it was a horrible fit with De'Aaron or anything like that. But Domas um, does really unlock a lot of the aspects of Keegan. And Sacramento wasn't in a spot where they could afford another bust, to be honest. And I'm not saying that Jaden Ivey will be that guy at all. I, I really believe in Jaden Ivey. But you know that Keegan is going to be a really productive NBA player. And at a position of need, you mentioned the processing speed is absolutely there. Um, the IQ and understanding of the game, I think, is just beyond his years, even a little bit of an older prospect that he gets a lot of crap for. Um, I, I think that you definitely see it, and there's a base to build off of, right? Something like, similarly, I feel like to what we talked a, lot, a little bit about with, with OG there is that you already have this foundation of a good player. And if you can add on top of it, then great. And I think that's where we're at with Keegan. And there were already flashes in Summer League, and take that for what you will, just Summer League, of like, oh, that was a little bit different, but it's not a flashy handle. It's just like, wow, that was really good footwork. And that's like more of what I think that you're likely to see with Keegan and some of the self-creation and ridiculous size and obviously uh, great efficiency from all over the field as well. So I, I think that you were spot on with Keegan. I, I think the big X factor is what sort of defender are they getting with Keegan and are they going to try to put him at the three or the four? Like when you play a team with, with some of these jumbo wing creators, are you putting Harrison Barnes? Are you putting Keegan Murray on that guy? I think it's something that they're going to need to kind of figure out and, and see what the best way to go forward. Is there something that I'll be keeping an eye on? Kevin Herter's a guy that really, really interests me. I, I think um, I'm not sure I'd, bet on this but i think there's a world where like kevin herter is in most improved player conversations and i think that the 12 points that he's kind of plateaued at 12 point per game average these last three years of his career in atlanta obviously playing with a really high usage guy 
in Trey Young and maybe not getting the most opportunity uh, with some of the other wings that they have on that roster. I think it's a little funny that Kevin Herter and Bogdan Bogdanovich somewhat have swapped places at this point is what it feels like. But you mentioned uh, kind of the tertiary playmaking that I think is absolutely there with Herter. His range is ridiculous. Him and Malik Monk both 41.9% on catch and shoot threes last year, which is going to be such a crucial aspect for the Sacramento roster. And that's a couple steps behind the three-point line for Kevin Herter. And the mid-range game is, is there for attacking those hard closeouts, maybe not great finishing at the rim, but I think those numbers will look a bit, little bit better when some of those uh, rim attempts are coming off of cuts that are fairly open if he makes the right movements playing off of Domas. So I, I'm very intrigued by Kevin Herter and what he'll be able to bring. And I mentioned De'Aaron not being great on the defensive end. I, I think that Herter showed an ability to kind of guard the point of attack during his time with Atlanta. I, I mean, it's hard to look at Atlanta film and try to break down defense because they might have been one of the only teams that was on par with Sacramento defensively these last couple of years. But in that in those two play-in games that they had last year, they throw him out there on LaMelo Ball. They throw him out there on Darius Garland. And I think he's better on those guards. Uh, really good job at, at fighting through screens. And I, I think that that's sort of the better matchup for him rather than some of these wings, which is maybe why I would view him a little bit more as a two. And I think that that really makes him a super ideal complimentary player alongside De'Aaron. So I'm really, really excited for Kevin Herter and to see if there's another level of his game that can be unlocked because he just turned 24 years old, which is crazy to me. Doesn't feel like a that young of a player, but absolutely uh, somebody that has a, a whole lot of potential and I think could take another step with a little bit more responsibility compared to what we've seen uh, during his time alongside Trey Young and behind some of those other guys in Atlanta. And Casey Paula. I don't exactly know what to expect from. I think that obviously if he's going to get a substantial amount of minutes, that the three-point shot has got to be improved. And there's not there's just not that many minutes that he's played in the NBA. That was one of the big swings that got him higher on draft boards during his time at Stanford was the three-point shot started to look good and, and then it's gotten funky. And so I, I think that that is obviously the big swing skill, but he almost reminds me a little bit of a Mo Harkless in a way. I think the versatility on the defensive end is is the prime highlight and it helps that they have three members of the Nigerian coaching staff that Casey Akpala was part of that national team on the Sacramento roster and Mike Brown, uh, Jordy Fernandez, and Luke Laux. So they're familiar with him and I think could put him in the best spots to kind of accentuate his strengths where maybe there is a little bit of, of playmaking and decision-making if he's able to put the ball on the floor. But I'm not expecting Akpala to be in the rotation right away. It wouldn't surprise me if that was the case, but to me, I, I think that spacing is just so essential in my mind. And and I'm, I think the Kings should be past the days where there's three poor shooters on the floor and De'Aaron and Domas are two right there. So to me, any Ocpolements are going to have to come with one of those guys on the bench. And I, I think that, Definitely the defensive impact is intriguing because he's a guy that when you try and look at this roster, I mentioned is Keegan Murray or is Harrison Barnes, the guy that's going to be assigned to those wing creators that the Western conference is kind of uh, full, full of at this point, Apollo might be your best option. It's just about, can you get away with him on the offensive end? So now I'm going to ask you to dialogue once again, because we are to the Raptors 
wing situation. And among them is Pascal, OG, Scotty. You know, it, maybe you consider Precious a wing. There's a lot of Precious pilled people out there. I know a guy who considers him a two guard currently right now. And, uh, you know, <laughs> he'd be big on the the self-creation stuff that was flashed, the, the smidge of it. But I'm curious what you think about the Raptors, a wing-heavy team, and uh, certainly you don't have to describe everyone. You know, you don't have to be like on minute eight of your, you know, monologue talking about Thad Young and how interesting his delay actions are and that kind of stuff. But I'm curious what uh, what stands out to you. Yeah, I was definitely a uh, Precious Achua believer for what it's worth. So we'll get to him eventually. But I'm just kind of curious of the best way to optimize all of these guys together. You know, specifically like Pascal and and Scotty, I think is interesting. Two guys that are probably best used with the ball in their hands and initiating actions. And is Pascal somebody that's uh, going to kind of be able to get back to his spacing ability that he had as more of a secondary guy during his time alongside Kawhi Leonard in that whole championship run? Um, and then like what sort of player is Scotty Barnes? Because star, I think, is obvious. Well, what caliber of star are we talking about here and what needs to happen for him to be the best player on a championship team? Like that is very high targets, but I, I think that it's within the realm of possibility in my mind and uh, obviously very early in his career to be throwing these around. But I, I think that, after what we saw in year one and that just blowing me away and the, his ability to, I knew he was a good passer, but I, I think the way that he was able to create an advantage already early in his career really shocked me. So I'm curious from your point of view, what needs to happen with Scotty um, for his ceiling to kind of be right towards the top of the league. And if you think that's even within the realm of possibility. And then when it comes to, OG Ananobi, it's what aspect of, and I, I know, I guess I'm just kind of throwing questions your way. This is me not being the most familiar with Toronto's uh, personnel in when it comes to details or anything, but what aspect of the self-creation? Am I, am I far off with saying that the handle is kind of the focus? That's, that's where I was at when it comes to some of the self-creation. There's not much of a mid-range game. Is that something that that matters or is it fine to go Mori ball with at the rim and, and the three point shot. Um, and then I think my main question with Pascal Siakam comes to roster construction and, and like just what the long-term projection of this Toronto team looks like, like, is he somebody that you think can be factored in as a long-term piece of this core? Or is he somebody that, Maybe if he doesn't compliment Scotty in the best way, I, I think that it would make sense, obviously, to prioritize Scotty over Pascal at the current stages of their career. Is is that a pairing that that can work between the two of them? And I'm gonna need a little bit of clarity on on Precious's uh, position because I, I'm of the belief that he's a five and. The two is a little bit of a stretch. I'm not going to lie, but uh, yeah, I'm I'm curious how positionally this all works with all of these guys that are probably three fours. Okay, so the I'll I'll do it in order. So the interesting thing about fit 
is Caitlin Cooper was kind enough to go searching through a bunch of statistics before she came on. And she revealed that the Raptors most efficient play type in the half court was in fact a pass out of the post from either Scotty OG or Pascal. And the heavy work is being done by Pascal there. He's, he's the best passer. Well, he's not the best passer, but he creates significantly more advantages than uh, Scotty. So there's more easy passes. There's more rote um, processing to be made there. Scotty, if you, you know, if you have a guy on the Raptors and you say, I need somebody to pass this ball through a hoop 80 feet away, Scotty would be the guy. But anyway, Scotty, what, what does he develop into? That's really interesting. And can he be the best player on a championship team? If he's an all like if he's all defense level, then I think that's a possibility. He's very far from that. He's slow at the point of attack. He gets beat there all the time. He's very um, brash. He asks for those assignments. He thinks he can take on those assignments, but he gets beat a lot. And he's not particularly good at rotating after getting beat. The peel switching is misses all the time and in some big moments the x out sometimes he forgets but one thing that he did do this year was he started out as a bad defender positionally in help team defense was bad by the end of the year i think you could consider it to be truthfully a positive that's a lot of progression in one year it's a super big deal especially considering you know you talked about keegan and having hopes for help side rim protection and probably a guy who can blow up actions at the nail and stuff like that. Scotty has to develop those things too at a high level. That's interesting. But offensively, you need him to be making quick reads with the extra access he has to passing lanes as a tall creator out of the pick and roll. You probably need at least some semblance of catch and shoot stuff above the break, which we'll see. I think it'll be there, at least a small semblance of it. And then you need more manipulative reads and passing at the half court level because he was fantastical in transition but the half court stuff like behind a bit og how does he factor into all of it and is it his handle that was limiting him his handle limits him certainly so does his idea of how a possession should play out he's a little bit scared of i think trusting his stride to get into the paint and then being adaptable once he's there. Against the closeout, and this is a fun stat I like to throw out, but OG's points per possession, his assists and stuff like that on drives are higher than Pascal's. OG is a really great passer while on the move. He he reads the guy stepping up. He does laydowns. He can do all that kind of stuff. He can spray to the corner. But it's about getting to that point. And if somebody's putting him in a closeout, then it's easy. Pump fake, drop dribble, you're there. He cannot beat guys with his handle, but he can beat them with his first step. So he has to simplify, get on balance, and focus on his athletic gifts to beat guys at the point of attack. We'll see what happens with the pull-up jumper because that is a complete unknown. The the set shot is golden. He's been 40% for forever on catch and shoot, so whatever. But pull-up stuff, we still don't have a good sample size. It's been fluctuating every year. And Pascal fitting on this team is interesting because I don't think it's a guarantee that Scotty ever has a better year than Pascal just had. That's not a guarantee by any means. But Scotty and potential and everything like that, you you want to bet on the young guy. 
And Scotty is also somebody who says he loves playing with Pascal. Constantly says Pascal's his favorite player. And they have a burgeoning two-man game that I think would be really interesting, especially if Scotty catches up to where Pascal is as a pick-and-roll guy and as a guy who can attack and play make out of isolations. Because Scotty was mostly a score out of isolations because he rarely got doubled. Pascal saw a gap line defense, sorry, pack line defense. Guys gapped him all the time and he had to, you know, work out of a closet most of these games. If Scotty gets to that level, I think it's not Domas and Fox. It's not like the classic, oh yeah, guard and big man, but there's some funky six foot nine and Scotty six foot ten stuff that might be able to happen with that. And the Raptors, it's how they make all of that work together is really radical working through the post playmaking probably because they can't just be as boring isolating from above the break as they have been with Scotty with Pascal and with OG. So there is, um, there's innovation on the table for them and they have to be willing to do it. But uh, it's not entirely clear at this point, I wouldn't say. That uh, definitely makes sense. I tend to maybe not favor because it's, easier to probably figure out the more traditional pick and roll of a garden and, and big, but maybe it's just coming from covering a team that has no wings. I, I tend to think that that sort of non-traditional two bigger guys uh, pick and roll, it just causes even more problems for defenses. Although there are some teams that I, I think it's probably a little bit easier when you're just able to switch that action um, and do that intelligently and have the right help side guys as well there that it makes for a little bit of an easier time guarding that. But certainly most of the teams in the league, I, I think would definitely struggle with that with Sacramento being one of them. Uh, to be fair, they probably struggle with almost every pick and roll action, but hopefully that changes uh, this coming year. So before we get into the next this next part, let me say my understanding of Rashawn Holmes' situation is that he has been absolved of the charges laid at his feet. Um, two courts in separate uh, states collaborated, found him innocent, and gave him uh, custody of his child. And so I'm going to be talking about him from the point of view that he is innocent. If you believe otherwise, I don't mean to dissent upon um, people who are like, I, I don't mean to dissent upon any other opinion. This is my understanding of the facts currently. I think he's going to play next year after not playing the end of last year. And admittedly, I've been a very big fan of Rashawn's game for some time. That is my understanding of the situation. And uh, if that upsets anybody, my apologies, but that is what I've seen reported so far. Rashawn Holmes was, I think, extremely impactful as a defender, as a play finisher, as like an all-around wheel greaser. He'll set screens. He'll get to spots on the floor. He'll make the push shot. He'll he'll dunk, you know? It's he provided a lot. And now Domas is there and he's got quick feet defensively. Rashawn moves better than a lot of bigs. I'm curious, do you play this guy at the 4? Do you play this guy in a lot of these jumbo lineups and just try and eat on the glass? Like, what is your vision of how the Kings are able to use him? The only reason that I am against playing Rashawn and Domas together actually isn't defensively. It's really just offensively. 
Um, because like you mentioned, Rashawn does a great job of moving his feet and Domas is somewhat accustomed to playing the four as well. I, I think between the two of them, you definitely give mm-hmm. Rashawn the assignment of uh, the more typical four and, and guy that's more quick footed with a first step. Um, Rashawn is a phenomenal switch defender. I, I think that anytime I try to figure out decent landing spots for him, which says something that I spend time trying to figure out other teams that uh, would make sense for Rashawn Holmes, but it's like a Boston or a Toronto or a Clippers, like these switch heavy schemes that have so much other versatility around uh, wherever he would potentially fit, I think is what makes a lot of sense. But I think that defensively that could work fine. And I actually think it's one of the more ideal front court partners with Domas because of just trying to figure out how you can possibly get rim protection. That's not exactly Holmes's strong suit, but I think he's one of the better options on Sacramento's roster when it comes to that. And him and Domas together, guys that aren't exactly getting a, crazy amount of blocks but i do think that they're in the right spots and are deferring shots even if they're not necessarily getting their hands on it um but it's offensively like domas i think in a in a short role is going to do fine with having at rashawn sitting there in the dunker spot it's just like when you also factor De'Aaron in here where it's like again i really think that they should try to avoid having three non-shooters and maybe non-shooter is a harsh word a little bit for De'Aaron but not respected shooter um, I, I think that they really should try to avoid that at all costs so it doesn't help that again I'm a little bit more skeptical of Davion specifically when it comes to shooting and that's the other point guard that you would have when it's not uh, De'Aaron out there so I think that they're going to try I would guess try Holmes and Sabonis alongside each other for defensive purposes, but I worry about how that works when it comes to really just getting the most value out of Domas and Fox on the offensive end when you're when you're putting Rashawn out there as well. And you know, there's I think some people that believe maybe there's a one year in Philly that he was putting up a couple threes that maybe there's something there. He's got touch from you know the nail nail extended like. There's a little bit of range that maybe gives some people some optimism. I'm not gonna buy it less until I see it because we feel like we would have by now. But if that develops, I guess this is a different story. But uh, definitely not functioning under that belief right now. But yeah, I think that uh, opposite of what typically I think would be the issue with two bigs lineups, I'm more concerned on the offensive end than any I would be on the defense at all. So before we get out of here. Davion Mitchell, I think there's, you, you talked about people who are just like, hey, it's going to be fine. I don't care. Not worried. And you know, like you said, you might press down on some things that are showing up as saying like, hey, this could manifest into being a problem for a career, not for a couple of years, but for a career. He can't shoot currently. I think that's fair. Maybe he will someday. But well, I think actually most people are familiar with the defense. I'm curious where you see his playmaking currently and as far as his attacking second side closeouts, if he can get one, right? All that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm curious where you view that. Yeah, I think his playmaking, like we saw the last, I believe, 15 games or so, it was really just him and Damian Jones running pick and roll every single time out there. So both of their numbers looked amazing. I mean, there's games where Davion is getting 
uh, double digit assists. I think his last game of the year, he went like 18 and 15 or something, something absurd like this, but averaging like eight assists uh, or so during this time. And I think it was just a ridiculous amount of reps. Like you mentioned the manipulative passing, not quite being there with Scotty. I, I don't think it was there with Davion in really much at all. Um, and, this is both rookies that we're talking about. That totally is something that could develop in time in the NBA as they get more accustomed to uh, this game and, and Davion with the amount of film that he watches. You would hope that maybe you can get some progress there. And I think that's another reason that coaching staff obviously believes in him just to the extreme. But as of right now, like I, I thought that the playmaking was pretty underwhelming. I think that Again, if he can get a closeout, I think he can attack and, and make the right read from there. I think he's a guy that can continue an advantage, but I don't know that I would rely on him to create an advantage. I, I think that there, he's really good at decelerating and stopping on a dime, and there is a little bit of like shiftiness to his handle that I think is intriguing, and maybe that's where some of the uh, creation and advantage creation could kind of stem from. But as of right now... I think that the playmaking is another reason that I'm kind of viewing as of now his ceiling as a backup in the league, which is fine. I think a lot of people take that um, and view that as a big negative, but I think there's obviously a lot of value in a really quality uh, stopper. I mean, he's already talked about as one of the best point of attack defenders in the NBA, and I think that that's valid, which is crazy to say as a six-one, and that height might even be a little bit kind, to be honest, uh, rookie in the NBA, but I, I think that that's totally warranted. So he obviously has extreme value on the defensive end when it comes to um, specifically isolation. I think getting around screens is also something that's not phenomenal, which is a little worrisome when you're talking about being a defensive specialist at the point of attack. Um, so I, I think that there's just a lot of details that need to be cleaned up with Davion. And he undeniably hit a crazy wall last year. He would never tell you that he did exactly until after the year ended um, in, in true kind of competitor fashion, I guess. But the work ethic, I think the other side of it was just not under fully realizing what an 82 game schedule looked like and kind of just working himself into the ground. And I think that having a better understanding of that, I'm really interested to see what year two looks like, because in my mind, this crazy work ethic, if it's going to show itself, it's from this year to year improvement and what we've seen over the course of an off season. And especially going into a year where you know what to expect in the NBA. So I think the playmaking has been underwhelming. I think that he's a smart player who can continue at advantage. I don't know that he's ever creating one. Um, and defensively isolation is amazing. Versatility's concerning at his size obviously and uh getting through screens a little bit better would certainly be a positive he's very interesting to me and especially paired with you look at this draft class like jalen suggs suggs struggled immensely in a lot of different ways offensively they both had horrible true shooting and had a lot of trouble giving you that easy stuff offensively and had and despite both making i think better reads than a lot of people in the draft class because they can't get to those places where the defense has to commit, they have trouble creating consistently. But there is some rim pressure stuff from both of them. Only Jalen is quite large for a guard, and Davion is not, not to mention older. So I think it's it'll be interesting to track both and see 
how each progresses. But I, I did want to hear the Davion thing because I know people who are quite high on him. And uh, I'm very interested to see how that, that career pans out. But I think that this podcast has panned out. And as such, unless there's something else you want to say about the Raptors before you get out of here, the opportunity is now to plug yourself to let everybody know where they should be keeping up with you. Last thing I'll throw your way, Samson, before I get out of here. Do you think that there's a potential trade to be worked out for Rashawn? It seems like this has been flirted for forever. But does <laughs> Boucher coming back change this? Or like, where are we at with this? So I don't know if you're familiar with my work or the stuff I talk about. I have been pining for Rashawn in Toronto for a very long time. Uh, Boucher was awesome last year. He had his best defensive year uh, of his of his career so far. It was a major positive. They won tons of minutes with him on the floor. And Rashawn is like, I wonder if the Raptors have moved past that. And especially, we didn't really do the Precious conversation, but Precious having the defensive utility that he did does make Rashawn perhaps a little bit duplicative, uh, at least in what they excel at. Rashawn is probably still more consistent on that end, but Precious already, he's shown, I think, a, a ceiling that makes me think all defense at some point in his career. So Rashawn, if you had asked me before last season when they signed Kem Birch to you know three years, 18 million, and Rashawn only made, what, 10? I was like, the Raptors couldn't give him 10. Are we insane? Um, if there was a trade, I don't think I could create a package on the fly, but Rashawn would be very interesting in Toronto, given what they're good at currently. Holy smokes, the cat just jumped on my lap. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the issue I've run into consistently now in trying to figure out, because I'm doing a similar series myself, going through the other 29 teams as like season previews and try to get a better feel for all the, uh, just updated on all the other teams throughout the league. The consistency I run into with trying to find a landing spot for Rashawn is that I think teams are able to find other players that give you 75% of what Rashawn gives you for just so much cheaper. Like, I think it's just about having to give up assets for Rashawn Holmes when you can go get a significantly cheaper option um, and hardly have to give up anything in the process, which is definitely uh, a little bit of an interesting uh, wall to run into with Rashawn. And and I'll say real quick, like on his contract situation, I, I think his agent really screwed him over. I don't think uh, he had the best agent at the time of his free agency. That number of four years, 80 million that got put out, I think was optimistic um, to say the least. And I think that might've had some teams look in other directions and thinking that, all right, if, that number's getting put out. Someone's going to give it to him. So we're going to look somewhere else. And every other team at what Charlotte, Dallas, Toronto looked in a different direction. And then Rashawn was sitting there um, and came back to Sacramento, even though the Kings clearly didn't expect him to when they traded DeLon Wright for um, Tristan Thompson and they go out and get an Alex Len in free agency. And all of a sudden they're sitting there with an overloaded um, 
an overloaded amount of centers, but no real wing players, it feels like, on this roster. So, And, and no backup point guard, really, when or third-string point guard, and DeLon Wright was one of the guys you traded away for one of these bigs. So I think his contract situation was definitely tricky, and it'll be interesting to see uh, kind of what ends up happening with him because I think he's going to be on the block all year long, and I'm definitely function as in, functioning as if last year was an outlier um, obviously everything going on off the court that that you kind of walk through and what you said is my understanding as well when it comes to that. But also um, COVID, he had two different eye injuries that were just absolute freak injuries. There was one he wasn't able to work out during um, just because it was going to move his eye around all too much. So I think he just had the definition of an outlier year and I'm definitely expecting a bounce back, but it'll be interesting to see how that looks with, with Domas on the roster. It's, yeah, we'll see. I'm very curious to see how this shakes out for the Kings because I somewhat managed to convince myself every single year that this might be the year that things kind of click. I do the same thing with the Timberwolves and, uh, you know, my fingers are crossed. The The other thing I want to ask you, though, is you're doing 29 episodes then. How hard is it to line up 29 interviews, dude? <laughs> It is so hard, dude. I'm way too far behind. I'm actually going in alphabetical and I'm like literally just only on C's. I'm so far behind and just have accepted that I'm going to run into preseason a little bit and, and I'm totally okay with it. So in about a month, you might be hearing from me. Um, it is it is <laughs> tough to line it up. That's, yeah, man. It's, uh, I, and I'm trying, especially you want good guests. You want to like make sure you're talking to like, the guy, the girl, the whatever from that market and you want them to, and you're like, I think these insights will be really good and you want a diverse set of opinions and everything. It's just like, man, I, I've never done the 29 thing before. I, this is episode like 13, 14 maybe. It's just a lot. So yeah, I, I'm, we're commiserating. I'm glad to commiserate with somebody because there's like, I know Nate Duncan does it. Uh, Blake was doing his... He was doing the Toronto version the other day, and it's like, well, Nate Duncan can talk to anybody, you know, like whatever. We got a grind out here, so yeah. Um, that that was the last thing, but yeah. uh, make sure you tell the people where they can listen if they want to hear your version of the twenty nine. Where can they listen? How do they keep up with you? Yeah, uh, appreciate you having me on again, and it's just going to be uh, the Kings Pulse podcast on any listening platforms and YouTube included. And any sort of writing is going to be on the King's Herald. Um, but yeah, I think that that is all I got, Samson. I really appreciate you having me on, man. Yeah, man. it's It's been a blast. Um, listener, I hope you enjoyed it as well. Uh, for all things Kings, Brendan's my guy. Make him yours as well if you're, if you're so inclined for the team out in Sacramento. And uh, yeah. Whether you got into this on YouTube, if you're on YouTube, hey, like the video. That helps, I hear. That's a good thing. And on the podcast channel, just keep doing your thing. Thanks for taking along with us. Uh, and yeah, we'll see you.